I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and we have a great story for you today on the Battle of Cana. But first, uh, let's get through a little bit of housekeeping. So, rate and review us on iTunes, please, and thank you. If you want to get a daily dose of military history, like us and follow us on Instagram, at Cauldron Podcast. Don't forget the Patreon. If you enjoy the show and want to get more content, contribute to the Patreon. You'll get some cool show gear, including the first 20 patrons will get a pretty badass t-shirt. Different Patreon levels also have different rewards. So you get access to new material, some swag, and then also there are some levels where you can pick the next battle or pick a particular weapon that you want us to focus on. So that's patreon.com and search Cauldron. Get your theories in ASAP as the second theory cast will go up this week. We finally have enough stuff to riff off of, so be on the lookout for that. I'm going to try and get it up by Wednesday afternoon. This episode, this battle cast, the main sources are the excellent book, The Ghosts of Cani, Victor David Hansen's Carnage and Culture, which might be my favorite book of all time, and I will probably be using over and over again here. Adrian Goldsworthy's Roman Warfare was really fantastic. Lots of great images, maps, pictures. Uh, really gave the uh, gave me a sense of what was happening and where. And then Barry Strauss's great book, Masters of Command, covers Hannibal, it covers Alexander the Great, and it covers my favorite, Caesar. All right, so that's enough of the business. Let's get stuck in. I'm a pretty big guy. (laughs) I hate crowds because I always feel really penned in. And to be honest, I tend to get pretty hot and uncomfortable. Concerts are really not my thing. And the crowds going in and out of stadiums or events can get really annoying for me. Sometimes in uh, our post 9-11 world, I get this weird like invasive thought of, What would happen if something blew up or if someone started shooting? It's not every time that I'm in a crowd I feel that way, but it happens enough that I'm, I'm pretty aware of it now. And most of the time I can just check for, uh, exits and escape routes. And then, uh, it isn't very often and I'm not a panicky person. So I just kind of go through that checklist and then I'm fine. In fact, I think it's probably a smart thing that everybody should do, but that's just me. So as someone that thinks this way, though, it can become really scary to imagine a place where there is no escape or there are no exits. Imagine that enemies are all around and just the crush of bodies kind of works against you, forcing you in in one direction or another 
and the complete like loss of control over your own direction would be friggin' terrifying. Seeing no possible way out and no room to fight in would cause me to... I, I don't. I don't really know, to be honest. Uh, maybe fight everyone, friend and foe, until I was free. Uh, maybe lie down and, and just cry until I was just ground into the earth. I have no idea. I hope that I would do the right thing, but I I can't really speak to it, having no frame of reference. And then you know, there's the case of some of the men in the Battle of Cannae who who stripped off their armor and bent their head, exposing their neck, and and they went to both sides, begging anyone within earshot, enemies, allies, it didn't matter, to just slit their neck and end the chaos and end the madness, just to get the whole damn thing over with. What kind of insanity, what kind of human hell has to exist to push a person to that extreme? To find out what happened to these soldiers at the Battle of Cannae, we need to take a trip back in time. 2,234 years ago, to be exact. To a time so long ago that Rome wasn't even the most powerful player in her own pond. Alexander the Great had been alive only a little over 100 years before these events, and the idea of an empire that would rival his in size and surpass it in every other aspect was ridiculous. We have to go back to a time when Italy was not the home base of an expansive Roman world, but kind of just a collection of friends and allies and enemies. So we're going back to the sun-dried and bleached dirt of southeastern Italy, a place where Western warriors perfected the art of murder on a massive scale. We're going back to the Battle of Cannae. North African Empire of Carthage would have existed where modern Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, parts of Spain are today. As descendants of the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians were a seafaring people possessing trade and finance skills that would be necessary to build a mercantile empire. The city of Carthage itself was a hotbed of trade and maritime industry with a relatively small population and without the necessary land, landed agrarian class needed to build a large standing army. So Carthage tended to rely heavily on mercenaries. In the middle of the 3rd century BC, Carthage became entangled with the rising power of Rome over a territorial dispute in the island of Sicily. After fierce fighting and years of warfare, Rome came out on top forcing a treaty on Carthage that included a heavy price tag. Having lost much territory and then being saddled with a large indemnity to pay back, Carthage was unable to pay its mercenaries, which resulted in a revolt. It's while putting this insurrection down that the Barkid clan came to prominence and where the story of Hannibal begins. 
Hamilcar Barca was a man of war. He was good at making it, and more importantly, for our purposes, he was good at teaching it. As the story goes, when Hamilcar was setting off to take a ship to Iberia, modern-day Spain, Hamilcar's son, Hannibal, begged his father to bring him along. A sort of ancient world, bring your son to work day, I guess. So Hamilcar, having a flair for the dramatic, held his son over the roaring fire in the room. In the smoke and flickering light, he made young Hannibal swear a blood oath that as long as Hannibal lived, he would be no friends to the Romans. Hannibal, a young boy, took this to heart and would keep that oath. In Iberia, which was valued for its many natural resources like tin and silver, as well as its large pool of fighting men to recruit from, Hannibal would learn the ways of warfare. Following his father as Hamilcar subdued and then consolidated the many Iberian tribes into an immensely profitable and powerful colony, Hannibal would learn the proper way to use terrain, how to lead heterogeneous armies, and the importance of logistics. You have to believe also that Hamilcar was constantly imparting his knowledge and understanding of the Romans to his young son, preparing him for that far-off day when Hannibal would bring Rome to its knees. And that day would come, but Hamilcar would never see it. He died in battle and left the reins of power to his son-in-law, Hasdrubal the Fair. Recognizing that once again Carthage was on the rise, this time on her side of the Mediterranean, Rome made a treaty with Hasdrubal to the effect that neither state would cross the Ebro River in Spain. The Carthaginians agreed and proceeded to consolidate and build up its Iberian colony. This action only made Rome more paranoid, and soon Rome had made the city of Saguntum its protectorate. Saguntum was south of the Ebro, and so clearly the Romans had broken the treaty first. But when Hannibal reacted by laying siege and taking Saguntum, Rome demanded Carthage turn its young phenom over. Carthage refused, and not only because they were in the right, but also because success in Iberia had made the Barkid clan very wealthy, very popular, and very powerful. The game was afoot, and the Second Punic War had already begun. In a lightning series of marches that would have warmed the hearts of Stonewall Jackson and the Little Corporal, Hannibal had crossed through the Pyrenees in southern Gaul before anyone in Rome knew what was going on. In what would be his most brilliant strategic move, Hannibal recognized that the waters of the Mediterranean were far too dangerous to cross over, and the only way to beat Rome was in Italy, where it was possible to pick off her allies. The crossing of the Alps, if it worked, would put him within striking distance of Rome, but he just as easily could lose his entire army in the massive, craggy, high-altitude, frozen passes of Europe's most famous mountains. The reward was too rich not to risk it, and Hannibal led his army of some 50,000 men and a corps of 38 war elephants into the passes. 
While crossing, Hannibal faced all the privations and harsh, harsh conditions right along with his men. But even a brilliant commander is no match for the mountains. And when Hannibal and his men stumbled and shuffled down from the mountain passes, their numbers had dwindled to a little over 20,000 and just a handful of elephants. But Hannibal had done it. He and his army came out in the Po River Valley, Roman territory. And for the first time, the Carthaginians were taking the fight to Rome. This lightning strike across the Alps sent the whole Mediterranean world into hysteria, none more so than the Senate of Rome as they correctly realized that even without taking Rome itself, Hannibal could beat Rome by demoralizing her Italian allies to the point that they questioned the reason they were friend and ally at all. Thinking that this was little more than a brash display of arms, the Senate sent an army north to deal with Hannibal, and in December of 218, a Roman army of some 40,000 men lined up across the river Trevia from Hannibal's 40,000 mixed mass of men. Using every trick he knew, Hannibal had outmaneuvered his opponents so that not only were the Romans up all night and so therefore exhausted, but they hadn't had time to rest their muscles or even to eat. And Hannibal had, on the other hand, made sure his men had been well-fed and even oiled down and massaged so that their bodies were loose in the cold December air. To further slow the Romans, Hannibal positioned his line so that the Romans would have to cross an icy river before they reached the Carthaginian forces. Once the fighting began, a group of light troops Hannibal had, hit, had hidden in the Roman flank popped up and started a slaughter that would be finished by the massive cavalry that hit the Roman rear. Maybe this is where the plan for Cannae was hatched. It seems likely because he began to understand the Romans on a better level, seeing them for the first time in the field. At Trebia, Hannibal's losses were negligible, whereas the Romans lost somewhere between 20 and 30,000 men. And not long after, Hannibal would punish another Roman army sent to beat him back, this time at Lake Tresemine. Here, the gifted Carthaginians set a perfect ambush that would use the terrain perfectly, pinning the Roman army up against the lake, and in the fight that followed, kill another 20,000 while taking 12,000 prisoners. In seven months, Hannibal had killed or captured somewhere between 40 and 60,000 Roman soldiers, the best trained and the most experienced warriors Rome had to offer. On top of that, Hannibal was now starting to gain momentum in the diplomatic world, gaining small alliances and the promise of even more to come if he could keep the beating on the Romans in their own backyard. With chaos as their constant companion, the Roman Senate had to do something and quickly. So they took the drastic measure of appointing a dictator. Now, our notion of a dictator is as this kind of like God emperor. And that would not come around for another hundred or so years with the rise of, uh, of Marius, Sulla, and my favorite, Caesar. At this point in time, being a dictator was kind of a shitty job. You had all the burdens of leading the country through its darkest hour, 
and with no real perks, and then after the year-long term was up, you were expected to turn over your power, and then the Senate was going to stand and judge you for all the things that you did as dictator. And, and the dictator that was chosen to deal with Hannibal was Quintus Fabius, the man eventually known as Cunctator, or the Delayer. Fabius came up with a brilliantly simple solution. If the army couldn't beat Hannibal in the field, then they simply wouldn't fight. Instead, they would set up ambushes for his foragers and burn and slash the countryside, depriving Hannibal of his food sources. Hitting Hannibal's supply lines and only engaging in small fights on good ground began to tell, and the Fabian strategy, as it's now called, was working. As Hannibal was unable to resupply or reinforce by sea, he desperately needed the crops of Italy to live off the land. But at every single turn, there was nothing but blackened earth. The problem with Fabius's strategy, though, was that the people and Senate of Rome were not huge on the whole delayed gratification thing. They wanted results. They wanted victories. And although the scorched earth thing was in fact having an effect, it felt to the Romans like a loss. It's a hard thing to see your life's work and only means of sustenance destroyed for the greater good. And an interesting side effect that was completely unintended was that the newly dispossessed farmers were selling off their ruined land at cheap prices to the wealthy aristocracy, and then moving to the cities. And this would lead to a massive growth in Rome's population, as well as the collapse of the agrarian system, replaced by a small group of immensely wealthy landowners and a massive boom in slave labor, which was now needed to work the new lands and would in the future become the currency of Rome. Both of these results of the Fabian strategy would become hallmarks of the late Republic and the Empire. Anyhow, that's beside the point. Realizing that his current situation was unsustainable, Hannibal needed a fight, and he needed one quickly. With everything in the balance, events shifted in favor of Hannibal as Fabius's year was up and he had to turn power back over to the Senate of Rome. And the Senate voted in two new consuls. These elected men were complete opposites, essentially like if you had a 24-year-old Bernie Sanders supporter and a 70-year-old Donald Trump supporter and told them they had to work together. That's essentially what you get with Gaius, Terentius, Varro, and Lucius Aemilius Paulus. Neither man had held high command before, and now they were being given 40,000 Romans and 40,000 allied soldiers, 80,000 total, the largest Roman army ever, and tasked with somehow beating Rome's most dangerous enemy. Varro has, throughout history, been pretty badly roasted as this kind of brash young gun, too full of himself for his own good, and maybe that's who he was. But most chroniclers of that time period had agendas. And I doubt if he was as bad as they make him out to be. And, and Paulus, on the other hand, was older and more cautious 
and has gotten a better rap throughout history, but I wonder if that is maybe again a function of the chroniclers not wanting to speak ill of a dead soldier. Also, the narrative of the defeat works better with a heroic old warrior dying in the battle. Either way, both of these guys had no business being on the same field as Hannibal, let alone trying to beat him. In June of 216 BC, Hannibal led his army to Apulia in south-central Italy, setting his camp up near the small city of Cannae. His goal was to pick a battlefield that he could win on, but was seemingly a death trap for himself, and it was at Cannae that he found the perfect ground. Following Hannibal, the two consuls and their freshly minted 80,000-man army arrived around Cannae in late July and set up their own camp. When the two consuls marched together, they would take turns as commander-in-chief, each on the other day. So it would be Varro on Monday, and then Paulus on Tuesday, and then Varro on Wednesday, and then Paulus on Thursday. This system was part of how it was always handled when the consuls combined armies as a way of letting both sides have a say in what happened. And it also led to really erratic and, and poorly planned campaigns, as we'll see. The other part is it led to really foolish mistakes. And on the day of Cannae, Varro was in charge. The Roman army of Varro and Paulus was in the process of becoming the most effective and efficient fighting force of the ancient world. Typical legions would have four to 5,000 men and would deploy in a standard fashion, velites or light infantry in the front using javelins to harass and annoy. And then the second and third lines had your histadi and princeps. And these guys had my favorite Roman weapon, the pilum. The pilum or pila was a heavy javelin, six to seven feet long, with a two-foot iron shank that ended in a pyramidal point. The idea was, just before the Roman infantry charge hit home on the enemy's shield wall, the Romans would stop and volley the pillar into the enemy. The weight of the heavy wooden shaft would push the point deep into the enemy's shield, wounding the guy behind the shield, or rendering the shield completely useless. The thin neck of the pilum was also designed to bend or break on impact, making it impossible for the enemy to pick it up and lob it back at the Romans. The pilum volleys would create holes in the enemy line and cause disruptions that would then be adv advantages for the Roman legionaries to cut their way into. And then the final line of battle consisted of the older, wealthier soldiers known as the triari. And they would have carried long, thrusting spears and likely would have had more expensive armor than the other men. They also, their job was to fill in gaps in the line or to take advantage of, you know, if, if the Roman lines in front of them started to have success, the triari would push behind and keep that success moving forward. As for the Roman cavalry... Well, hell, <laughs> there really isn't much to say about them, as the Romans at this point didn't really take cavalry very seriously or see how to use them properly. Made up of wealthy young men, the only people really 
able to afford the costs of having horses, Roman cavalry was most effective as scouts. In battle, the Romans usually just threw the cavalry on either side of the infantry, and that was their way of protecting the flanks of the infantry. Hannibal's army at Cannae was far more interesting. Balearic's slingers would usually be placed in front of his army, working as a screen and actively skirmishing with the enemy's light troops. These slingers were the most deadly in the ancient world, capable of shooting a lead bullet or a chiseled stone with deadly accuracy. These early ranged units were highly effective within 100 yards, but could get their shots all the way out to 400 yards. One of the things that I found really interesting while researching this is there are examples of these slingers' uh, ammo, so their little lead bullets, that they had inscribed messages on. So basically, they'd say something like, you know, fuck you or die or down with Rome. And then they'd fire off that, that bullet at the Romans. Shit-talking runs through the ages because at the same time, 2,000 years later, when we're bombing Hitler, or even now when we're sending you know, bombs at ISIS or whoever it might be, you'll see soldiers right on the side of their ammunition, you know, Merry Christmas or Hello Hitler or whatever it might be as a way of sending the proverbial middle finger to the enemy in their moment of, of triumph. So the, the Balearic Slingers would have been lightly armed and quick, their whole concept just being to go out make a, a big show of motion, take down a couple enemies with some shots, and then to dissipate back and let the heavy infantry do the fighting. And the heavy infantry in Hannibal's army was his African spearmen, armed with six-foot spears and an oval shield. These guys were fierce warriors, brought over from Carthage and Libya. They usually wore an iron helmet and tunic, but having collected the superb army of the fallen legions at Trabia and Tresmine, they now had much better protection. And then there was Hannibal's Iberian infantry. And these guys were of excellent quality and worked well as complementary forces for the North African. Hannibal's infantry was rounded out by his huge trouser-wearing Gauls. Shaggy and wild, these Gauls were despised by the Romans for their appearance and the long history of terrorizing Rome's northern provinces. The Gauls fought bare-chested, some even butt-naked, using their long swords to sweep and smash at Roman heads. Charging like bulls, normally the Gauls would have seemed reckless and out of control, but at Cannae, they were following orders and seemed to have a plan, making them even more fearsome to the Romans. Hannibal's cavalry was much different from their Roman counterparts. Hannibal's cavalry was light years ahead of their Roman counterparts, with his Iberian cavalry using small spears expertly and being a form of heavy cavalry for Hannibal. The Numidian contingent of his cavalry was also very good, riding so well that they didn't even use a bridle for control, instead guiding their horses with only their knees. And the Numidians wore no armor and used speed and horsemanship to protect themselves. 
On the attack, the Numidians used a handful of light, thin javelins, almost needle-like in appearance, to great effect and were basically Hannibal's scalpel, slicing and dicing the enemy and then disappearing. These two very different armies met on the field at Cannae on August 2nd. The battlefield was flat and fairly even, with the river Aphidius running to the north of where the armies would eventually meet. About two miles from the river, there were some low rolling hills and some uneven ground that would have been difficult to move on. This, high, this kind of hilly terrain swept west and north, eventually meeting the river. Again, poor terrain for movement in general. It's in this hilly area Hannibal would camp and create his trap. By drawing up his men on the flat two-mile plain, he would create the illusion of being trapped by Romans. The Romans would see broken ground to his rear and right flank and a river on his left flank, and if they could just break him here, Hannibal would have no safe escape and the long Carthaginian nightmare would finally be over. By setting up camps on both sides of the river, the Romans hoped to force a battle and keep Hannibal from slipping away once again. On the morning of the battle, Vero spread his men over a mile-long front. Vero gets a lot of hate for his simplistic formation here, but I'm not sure if that's fair. He had a massive advantage in numbers, and the enemy holed up in a confined space. It's easy to say that his tactics were stupid and simple, but nine times out of ten, the Roman army in this situation steamrolls the enemy and massacre everyone that they can. Again, I wonder if this is one of those things where the chroniclers are being unfair to Vero because of their allegiance to a certain patron or family. Anyhow, the Romans set themselves up with the Roman cavalry on the right anchored by the river, and the massive block of infantry, Roman legions and allied legions in a giant block-like formation, and then the allied cavalry on the far left of their line. The Roman cavalry between both sides came to around 6,000, far fewer than the Carthaginian cavalry of 10,000. Hannibal's dispositions were much more complex. On his left, Opposite the Roman cavalry, he placed his Iberian and Celtic heavy cavalry. In the center, facing that wall of legionaries, Hannibal created a convex crescent. At its thick center, he placed his Gauls, and from there swept both sides back, with each flank ending with his North African spearmen. On Hannibal's right, across from the Allied cavalry, he placed his Numidian light cavalry. And Hannibal, being smart and understanding that he would be most needed where the, the, the most amount of killing would take place, placed himself in the center where it would be most dangerous. It was here with the Gauls in the center of that crescent of infantry that we have one of the great stories of him as a commander. Observing the mass of Roman infantry, one of his commanders, named Gizgo, despaired, and at the, sh just the sheer size of the enemy army scared the man. Commenting on the numbers of the Romans, Gizgo was overheard by Hannibal. And it's here that Hannibal uses humor to build up his men by saying, quote, 
You forget one thing, Gizgo. Among all their numerous forces, there's not one man called Gizgo, end quote. So that's a, I love that because that's a brilliant way to diffuse the tension and pump up your man at the same time. So whether this happened or not, it helps to paint a picture of this man who must have been a beloved leader because he was about to put his army in a very precarious situation. The battle was about to begin. Rome outnumbered the enemy almost two to one and had Hannibal trapped by his own cleverness. To open the battle, skirmishers on both sides volleyed and then withdrew. Hannibal then pushed that strange crescent of Gauls forward into the brick wall of Romans. The noise of horns and shouts would have added to the thunder of feet as the gap was closed. In what must have looked like a stutter step, the lines would stop before closing and unleash their javelins and throwing spears, and then rush in to smash into the opponent. The two lines met with a massive clamor, and the slow grind of shield wall fighting began. At the same time, Hannibal sent his heavy cavalry charging into the Roman cavalry on the Roman right. The Numidians on Hannibal's right engaged the Roman allied cavalry, at one point 500 Numidians pretending to surrender. The Romans moved the captives to their own rear and continued to battle the expert-like cavalry of Hannibal. Totally outclassed on the right, the Roman cavalry fled the field and allowed the heavy cavalry of Carthage to swing across the back of the Roman army and fall upon the allied cavalry currently fighting the Numidians. At that moment, the 500 supposed Numidian captives pulled out hidden weapons and joined in the slaughter of the Roman allied cavalry. While the Roman cavalry was being embarrassed on either side, the Roman infantry was becoming sure of victory. They hated the Gauls, and so took great pleasure in dispatching them to their silly little tree gods. Grinding the Carthaginian center down and slowly moving them back was pulling more and more of the Roman infantry into the center of the line, creating a massive jumble of Romans eager to help beat Hannibal. As the Romans pushed forward, Hannibal somehow either orchestrated a feigned retreat or possibly stopped an actual retreat and turned it back. Whatever happened, the effect of moving the crescent backwards created a pocket that the Roman army poured into, sensing that the Gauls were going to be broken soon. Unfortunately for them, this pocket actually slung the North African spearmen out on either side of the Roman mass, and like a giant bear trap, Hannibal's crack infantry swung inwards, slamming both Roman flanks. At this point, the Roman cavalry had been completely pushed from the field, and so Hannibal's cavalry returned to land the knockout punch. The Iberian heavy cavalry and Numidian light cavalry charged into the unprotected rear of the Roman formation, and like a lid on a jar, sealed the Roman army's fate. 
bottled up and encircled, the Romans had no choice but to try and fight their way out. But because of the crowded, packed space they were working in, there became less and less room to fight and move in. So the Romans believed a man only has about eight minutes of maximum effort in him before he needs a rest. The energy needed to break out of this trap set by Hannibal far exceeded human ability. The slaughter, or as some historians have called it, the murder, lasted hours. As Victor Davis Hanson points out, some 30,000 gallons of blood would have been spilt, and as many as 200 men died a minute. The physical difficulty of slicing, stabbing, and gutting so many people was made easier in some cases by the sun and heat. Penned in, and with no access to water, the Romans choked and gagged from the dust of thousands of feet, and the heat pounded from above, literally driving Romans mad, or causing them to drop dead from exhaustion. The amount of men that must have just tripped and been trampled, and the poor wounded who in many cases, again, would have been stomped to death by the sandals of their friends, we can never actually know. The, the Romans in the center are, to my mind, the ones that had it worst, with no way to strike out at the enemy, but knowing full well what was coming. Being forced to just kind of freaking wait for hours must have been, I mean, it must have been the, the most horrifying place to be, maybe of all time. And the famous story uh, of the Roman soldier that was found after the battle who, instead of waiting for death, had dug a shallow hole, stuck his head in it, and buried himself, choking on earth, rather than waiting for a Carthaginian blow, actually makes sense to me. The Battle of Cannae ended with the usual ancient battle slaughter of the fugitives. Paulus, who had been wounded earlier by a slinger, had dismounted and through either an order or just the confusion of battle, his men did the same thing and were cut down by enemy cavalry. Vero, the man most responsible for the disaster, had escaped to Venusia with a group of men. In the chaos and confusion, about 17,000 Romans escaped to the camps or to the town of Cannae itself. On the battlefield, the Roman dead numbered 45 to 50,000. And it's on the battlefield that they would stay. There was no burial. The mechanics and the fuel needed to burn so many dead was far beyond Hannibal's army. So the bodies were stripped of gear and left to putrefy and rot in the hot Italian sun. Hannibal's losses were far less, only around five or 6,000, most of whom were Gauls who had been fighting in the center of the infantry line. Hannibal's losses were irreplaceable, whereas Rome would soon have another army pulled together. And so the struggle with Hannibal would continue. Unable to march on Rome because of his army's size and the lack of siege equipment, Hannibal had to content himself with trying to build a larger army through making a network of allies. 
Believing that the great victory at Cannae would be his key with the Roman allies, he again pushed them to abandon Rome. But again, the response was lukewarm at best, gaining him very little in the way of men or money. He also tried to push Carthage into sending him more men, but collect he, he collected the rings of the 80 senators killed at Cannae and had them poured at the feet of the Carthaginian Senate. And he believed that this would be a way for them to see the victory that he had had and to go forth with sending him reinforcements. The Romans, for their part, reacted to the defeat at Cannae with great resolve. Banishing the survivors without pay to details in Sicily, the Senate passed a law forbidding any weeping in public and even buried two Gauls and two other slaves in a way of uh, rendering an offering to the gods. And in order to arm the next scratch army that they set up to defend the city, the Senate actually had a temple full of old captured Gallic arms raided and the gear was distributed to these men. Quickly organizing a new legion and a few new armies, Rome decided to try another strategy and began to pull the wings off the fly. Striking at Spain, Sicily, and Sardinia, Rome was determined to make Hannibal's position completely untenable. For the next 14 years, Hannibal was forced to march back and forth, up and down, all over Italy, with very little to actually show for it. And there's a famous quote uh, brought to us by uh, Livy, where one of Hannibal's men named Maharbal says, quote, Of a truth, the gods do not give the same man everything. You know how to gain a victory, Hannibal, but you do not know how to make use of it. End quote. Essentially chiding the great Hannibal for not gaining more from his victory at Cannae. But again, the fault is not all his. Hannibal remained a masterful general that entire time in Italy, outmaneuvering and defeating all comers. Where Hannibal lost was elsewhere. The Carthaginian Empire was picked apart, and Hannibal's only shot at relief was lost when his brother Hasdrubal and his army of reinforcements were destroyed at the Metaurus River. Scipio, soon-to-be Africanus, would invade North Africa and threaten Carthage, forcing Hannibal home to defend the city, and at Zama, the Second Punic War was won by Rome. Scipio's peace terms were fair, and in the following years, Carthage regained its footing as a commercial power. Rome, in her jealousy and fear, demanded Hannibal be turned over, but he slipped away to the court of our friend Antiochus III. Again, after a defeat by Romans, Hannibal's freedom was a peace condition, and again he slipped away, this time to Bithynia. Ironically, surrounded by Roman power, Hannibal is reported as having poisoned himself again to avoid Roman capture. And so ended the life of one of history's most masterful field generals and tacticians, a man whose victory at Cannae would be studied for thousands of years and become the basis for some of the world's most famous battles. Every general sense has tried to achieve the same total, complete victory, with few, if any, ever having done so. But the story of Cannae, to my mind, is much more about Rome's ability to throw off the defeat and continue. Like the British, they had an incredible ability to weather catastrophe,
And in the most dire of situations, Rome's strengths shine through. The power of Rome would soon stretch from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. But Carthage would cease to exist. Rome, not wanting any rivals, made the impossible demand of the Carthaginians that they abandon their city. And when they refused and decided to fight, Rome laid siege to Carthage and captured the city in 146 BC, killing or selling into slavery the entire population and dismantling the city brick by brick. All right, thanks for listening. I hope you liked this battle cast. Again, do the like and review stuff. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, go to Patreon and the first 20 contributors will get a shirt along with the other good stuff. Next up, we are heading to Asia for our first naval battle. So be on the lookout for that. And then next month, we have a couple of cool episodes with guests. Uh, We are doing a crusader battle with an arms expert and a revolutionary war battle with a professor and a fellow podcaster. So be on the lookout for those. Now, let me leave you with this. The Battle of Cannae saw Rome lose on the low end 45,000 and on the high end, 70,000 men. To put that in perspective, for us Americans, the bloodiest war we have ever had was the Civil War, which was uh, around 750,000 dead. The bloodiest single battle of that war was the Battle of Antietam, where 3,654 Union and Confederate men fell. The bloodiest single day in U.S. military history is June 6, 1944, which is D-Day, and the U.S. lost 16,293 men killed. That means that the Romans likely lost somewhere around three times that number. Keep in mind, we're using swords and spears and slings and bows. And even the deadliest most bloody battle in U.S. history, the Meuse-Ergon, in World War I, which lasted over a month, the U.S. losses were only 26,277, about half of what Rome lost. Take the most controversial war in U.S. history, Vietnam. The U.S. losses there amounted to 58,209 for the entire conflict. Vietnam lasted over a decade. Rome lost, very possibly, more men in six hours than the U.S. lost in the entirety of the Vietnam War.